Thanks, Brian. If you have a Bible, you could turn to Mark chapter, chapter 1. As you're turning there, uh, I want to say, uh, say welcome once again. I think you probably see right in front of you. We've, we've walked through them for the most part, but there's a couple of ways for you to get connected there. There's a card you could put some information on. Uh, there's also a desk at the back. Just find someone who you think looks like they, they know what they're doing around here and ask them. Say, how would I get connected or uh, how did you get connected this, to this church? That's a good icebreaker. Uh, maybe uh, those of you who struggle with stranger anxiety, uh, that's a good one. Hey, how did you get connected here? And that would maybe lead you down a path of finding some avenues. As well, uh, keep in mind the prayer requests. We'd love to pray for you if we could. It's one of the ways we can serve you. It's not perfunctory to have the ear of of the Father, to have the God of the universe listening in is not a small little thing. And so if we could do that for you, um, we'd love for you to take advantage, advantage of it. The first chapter of Mark is going to be the place that we start this morning. I say that we start there because we're really taking big, sweeping, overview type looks at some concepts, some themes in Scripture. What we've been doing this summer is going through a confessional statement, a statement of faith for the church that in the coming month or so, starting August 30th, you'll be asked to engage with and vote over whether or not we want to adopt this confessional statement as our statement of faith. One of the reasons we've taken time to teach through it is because this should make you perk up. If you've been a part of this church, if you're here just visiting and you think to yourself, I might land here, this seems like a place that I could call home, then what we believe about God and about the world and about Scripture is of utmost importance. Now, I know, I'm, I'm not naive. I know that many of you here are here for a bunch of different reasons. Some of you have been coming to Four Oaks for years and years and years because you can't drive yet. And, and if you could... If you could, you're just waiting until you get your Ultima, and that Nissan will take you anywhere but where your parents are. I, I get that. Some of you are here just because some friends invited you, you're not sure what this is, and you felt like it would be a social faux pas to keep saying no, so you came to check it out. You may be here because there's someone cute sitting at the aisle across the way. These are all reasons that you might be in a church service. I get that. But let me invite you to, and let me ask you to think about what we believe about God and about the Word of God, about the world that we engage in and the sin in our soul, is the most vital thing that we do and are as a church. It's the most vital thing. It's not a minor little aside. There's a lot of ways that you could get community. There's a lot of ways that you could network. You could probably meet a spouse in other ways. i I can't think of any right now, but you could meet, you could meet, some of you are like, tell me about that. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. There's many other reasons to be a part of an organization or a club, but we are not the church if we are not faithfully declaring who God is and why he matters, how we have access to him. And so this statement of faith that we're walking through is important. We have come to the 10th week. Yes, it's already 10 weeks of summer. Some of you have tans to prove it, and uh, that's good. The rest of you, you need to get on it. You have maybe like two weeks left to not go back and be the pasty white kid. So in these weeks, we've taken time. We're 10 weeks in. Today, we're going to look at a sweeping concept of the kingdom of God. If I asked you the question, what was Jesus about? What did he say? What did he do? I think we'd get a bunch of good answers. I really do. You could say he's about forgiveness. He was about love. 
He was about the golden rule. He was about a million different things. Rarely do we talk about Jesus being about the kingdom of God. This is kind of big 30,000 foot worldview perspective kind of thinking. But it's vitally important. And what I want to do is I want to walk through some of the sections of scripture to establish the fact that the kingdom of God is vital. And then we're going to look at the article together and see what it has to say about this particular concept. So let me read just verses 14 and 15 of Mark, Mark chapter 1. Then I want to pray with you, and we will jump right into it. One of the things I love about Mark is how fast he gets to the point. Mark had like four espresso shots and a Red Bull before he sat down to write. The most, one of the most common words is like the only contraction he knows. On the day when they described the words yet and or and 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 but, he was missing. The only thing he got was the Greek word for immediately. So you read it, something happens, then immediately Jesus went off and he was in a boat. By the 14th verse of Mark chapter 1, he is already summarizing Jesus and his public ministry and the things that he said. And I want to use this to establish how Mark says what Jesus was about. What was he about? About that money or whatever he was about. What was he about? And this is what it's going to say. He was about, starting in verse 14 of Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Mark doesn't give John much press. 13 verse, you're done. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now gospel we've heard, that's a word that we might say. Jesus was about that. Verse 15 says, and he was saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. This statement Mark uses to summarize what the good news was. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he talked about the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible is going to tell us. Now, we're going to launch off from here into a bunch of different places. But I want to pause and pray. I want to ask that we have a proper perspective. Let's confess to God our corporate neediness, how big of a mess we are, and ask that he meets us in these moments. So let's pray. God, we are your people. Amazingly so, we are your people. And we've gathered, we've come once again under the teaching of your word to sing of you, to think of you. And this is a a varied bunch. We are needy and destitute in so many different ways. That we've not gathered because we gained access by our merit. We're not super spiritual. I imagine that many of us are struggling with doubt even right here in this moment. We've brought secret sins that we dare not even confess. More than that, sins that we just cannot get over. They beset us time and time and time again. We fail to walk in ways that are pleasing to you. And despite all of that, we come because you are gracious and merciful and kind. We come because you've called us your children, not by our merit, but because of what Jesus has accomplished. So God, thank you for that standing we have before you. 
Not only are we your people, but God, this is your book. These are your very words, life to us. Instruction and guidance and care, direction, all truth. And I pray that you'd help us to interact with these words and these concepts and these truths with reverence. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Do all of the things deep down in our souls that we so often kick against and fight against. This moment, the word of God and hearing it taught and coming underneath it and trying to understand it can be a sleepy exercise for our souls. And I pray against that. God, I pray that you would bring life in these moments. Holy Spirit, come. Lead us into all truth. Take from Jesus and give to us. Convict us. Comfort us. Help us to see. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's kind of strange, really, that Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom, and yet that's not the word that we first go to. I don't think that kingdom is the first thing that we think about necessarily. And it's kind of an awkward word. Most of us are politically astute enough to know that we don't want to be those kind of Christians who talk about, like, manifest destiny, and we're here to take over. We don't want to live in an us and them kind of mentality. But it's interesting because Jesus apparently talked about kingdoms so much. It's not just Mark. When it's summarized by other gospel writers too, he talked about it so much that when they thought to themselves, what was the good news? Oh, here's the good news. The king has come. And God, who is the rightful owner and ruler over everything that we see, is going to put things right. And that was the fundamental good news, non-negotiable of Jesus. And I'm sort of surprised that we don't think about it very often because innate in all of you, I don't know if you know this, but you love conquest. You do. You love, you would daydream maybe about having your own little fiefdom and people following your rules. I know this because I have children and innate in them, they love conquest. It does not matter how big the space is or how much land they own. If they have their own space, they will fight tooth and nail. You heard me literally, tooth and nail and hair and fists and ninja kicks and whatever else they can muster. I walked in on on one of the most intense fights last week that I'd ever been in and we got three boys within two years of each other. So this is, some stuff has gone down. And I walked in and it was, it was, it was on. It was just totally on. So I sorted it out, sorted it out like a good ref, like a dad. I said, what was the problem? What actually happened? And all my son had to say was, he tried to come on my bed. As though that settled it. I know, but why would your foot be in his teeth? Why, why, what happened with that arrangement? I told you he came on my bed. Something innate in him said, this is my space. I have, I have declared rules and laws and you simply don't come into my sovereign territory, period. We love conquest. I taught them the game of risk because who doesn't love risk? But you know how long it took them to get them interested? I showed them a map. I said, here's a bunch of countries. You'll start in some countries. You'll have an army and you'll take over other places. Dad, we're in. Let's do this. They wanted conquest. So the theory or the thought or the perspective of the fact that what God was doing in Jesus Christ was taking over, he was bringing about a kingdom, should resonate with us. 
We should get it. Something was lost. A people were gone and they were united to another ruler. And God came to put things right. That is the idea of kingdom. Most of us, when we think about kingdom, we think of some sort of period movie, kind of a a period age TV show back in the medieval times. We are not that far removed from empires and kingdom and that being the way that our globe works. Less than 100 years ago, at at the end of World War I, the British Empire was one of a few empires in the history of the planet upon which the sun never set. That's what they say. I know what that means. That means at any given point, you could be in a part of the British Empire and it would never be dark. That much of the globe was covered. In fact, in 1922, less than 100 years ago, the British Empire laid claim to, guess how much of the globe? Yes, exactly right. 22%. I don't know how you guess. Yes, 22% of the globe was the British Empire. That means that at a certain point in time, less than 100 years ago, there was a potentate or a figurehead or a queen. You know, at the moment, like some of you are just nuts about the royal family and you know exactly who was in charge in 1922. I don't think it was the same old lady that's there now, but it's, uh, (laughs) I don't think so, but it was someone. And at some point, less than 100 years ago, someone could say, I basically control... My sway, my influence is over one out of every five steps on this planet. 22%. 20% of the world's population was underneath the British Empire in some way less than 100 years ago. There was another dynasty just 200 years ago in the 1820s. It was the Qing Dynasty, which I thought was a delightful historical pun. I think it was in China, Q-I-N-G, which I think is pronounced king. And when we're talking about kingdoms... That pleased me. But the Qing dynasty, this Qing dynasty, at one point had 37% of the world's population was underneath this one kingdom. One, more than one out of every three people was in this empire. This idea of someone ruling and reigning in their influence going over the land is the basics of a kingdom. And in a few moments, we're going to walk through and establish this idea of the kingdom as the fundamental good news that Jesus brought. It's the fundamental message of the gospel. God is the rightful king. And he has not left his people nor his place to decay and rot. He has come back to take control. That is the message of the gospel. Fundamentally, that's what Jesus taught. I want to show you some of the places and some of the ways. I already mentioned Mark chapter 1. What I'm going to do over the next few minutes is we're going to walk through and just touch on tip of the iceberg type spots where kingdom language, that perspective of the world as a place of darkness, controlled by by sin, and that Jesus has landed as a sort of, uh, some theologians have called it kind of like the first stab of of, kingdom. subversive activity. He's here to sabotage and bring about the rule of the king. I'm going to just show you some of the places that shows up. And I want to show you how prevalent they are, even in passages that you know and you will recognize. Jesus talked kingdom language. Mark chapter 10. You can just, you can just kind of roll there if you want. It's just to the right a few pages. I don't think it'll be on the screen. Mark 10, verse 13. Some people are rushing in on Jesus. They're bringing children to him children to him. It says in verse 13, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. The disciples rebuked them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Now, how many of you have never heard this story? Zero, right? You know this. This is an oil painting right next to Jesus with the sheep and the lamb is, is the oil painting of Jesus with the children on him, right? We know the story, but what did Jesus really say? Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The rightful heirs to a king ruling over a place and in time and a people, that's what they're going to inherit, the kingdom. It's right here in some of the most well-known passages. I want you to turn back to, your, to the left, Matthew chapter 13. We're not going to read all of these, but I just want you to see a couple of spots. Matthew 13 has some of the best-known parables of Jesus. How did Jesus teach? He often told stories. He was decidedly unboring. He did not make religious or the things of God boring. He would say things like, look at this fish here. Then he would pull a David Blaine and like pull, you know what I mean? He pulled the coins out. That's probably the first time those two figures have ever been said in the same sentence, and I apologize. I apologize for that. He would teach through parables and stories. They were always about the kingdom. Matthew 13 is one of the most well-known, the sower and the seed. How many of us have known this story inside and out? What does he say in verse 11? To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom was on his lips. Verse 24, the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed. Verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. Over and over and over, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Verse 45, kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. You get the idea. That passage in particular, this pearl of great price, is the first sermon that I ever preached. In 1999, 260 high school kids coming together for a, a trip overseas. And someone asked and said like, hey, I think it would be good if you'd preach this message on the kingdom. I was nervous. It was horrible. But this passage, this idea, what the kingdom is like is what Jesus decided to make the emphasis of his ministry. And there's something amazing about it. Apparently, his discussion of and his teaching on the kingdom was so dramatic and so inspiring, people wanted to know more about it. Did you see how he just described it? It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. This guy wasn't selling discount clearance Walmart pearls. Don't you hate those guys? This guy sold fine pearls. He was a foodie. He had the finest eye, the best taste, the most sophisticated palate. There's something about the kingdom that when he finds that particular pearl, it makes him want to eBay everything. He sells it all. Honey, bring the, bring the house. We're going to put it up for sale. I sold my car, my motorcycle, my jet ski, the business, everything I have. If I could just have this. That's how singularly appealing and delightful the thought of the kingdom So you're telling me, people would say, there's a place and a time where we can be under the perfect rule of God. That's possible. And they would do anything they could to hear more and more about this. What's the story of the rich young ruler? 
Nothing but a guy who was so interested in the kingdom that he came to Jesus one day and said, what must I do to inherit this thing that you talk about all the time? A successful, rich young man. Let's call him Tomas Brady or something like that. And he, uh, he came to the ruler. He came to Jesus and said, how, how, can I, how can I get in? Nicodemus is a similar story. I just want you to think about and, and have a category in your brain, in your mind. This was unthinkable good news to a people who had had David on the throne at one point, had been promised a kingdom. But from the beginning, this was good news. God had come. He was going to put things right. It's right there in the Christmas story. Remember Isaiah 9? Jesus will come. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. All those beautiful things that go in the swirly letters on the top of the Christmas card. Remember all those? But there's some power and conquest in a risk-like fashion at the end of that passage in Isaiah 9 too. You know what it says? It says that the government will be upon his shoulders. The increase of his rule will never end. He will rule with a scepter of righteousness. Conquest is right there in the Christmas story. The baby landing was much about, as much about love and peace and joy as it was about rule and right and might. It's right there in the Christmas story, and people long to hear it. Jesus, tell us more about this thing. Tell us more about this kingdom. I'm going to walk through this statement in three different sections, and we're going to use these words to describe life in the kingdom. Enter, live, and hope. That's the idea. Enter, live, and hope. So the first question that we should be asking is, how do we get in this? Just like the rich young ruler, how do we get into this particular kingdom. I want to read this first section. It's really just one long run-on sentence, the first sentence of the article. It should be on the back of your worship guide. It'll be on the screen up behind me. This is basically a statement about how you get in. How do you enter this amazing kingdom? It says this, we believe that those who have been saved by the grace of God through union with Christ, by faith and through regeneration by the Holy Spirit, Enter the kingdom of God and delight in the blessings of, a new cov- of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the inward, inward transformation that awakens a desire to glorify, trust, and obey God, and the prospect of the glory yet to be revealed. I want to stop right there. I think sometimes these articles are so big and so expansive, we get lost, we forget that we read the whole thing at the beginning. I just want to stop, and this basically is a statement about how you enter. How do you get in? As much as people want to be about conquest, they want to be on the inside. You probably have a group of friends who have done some sort of activity or have some sort of club that you want to be a part of. I remember in the, in the shelter belt, some of you, we live in a place where there's trees, real live ones. Uh, we had manufactured fake trees on the grasslands of North Dakota. In order for all the soil to not erode, you would just You would just line the field with a row of three trees. It's called a shelter belt. And that was my forest growing up as a kid. And we would have a club, a treehouse club, with a secret handshake and a word you had to get in. There was a piece of wood that you put up in the air that if, if someone was there, then you could join them. If not, you could never go in without another person. We were called the invaders. Everybody wants to be on the inside. Kids would cry because we'd keep them out. Kids, kids Blonde ones named Lance would cry because they couldn't you know, get in this club. Everybody's a little bit like Michael Scott. He says, inside jokes are my favorite jokes. 
I love them. I hope to be a part of one someday. That, that kind of thing. Everyone wants to be in, on the inside. And this statement basically says, here's how you get on the inside. You need a right relationship with the king. No one enters the kingdom of heaven without a right relationship with the king. The reason it was good news that Jesus came is because he could do away, he alone could do away with the one thing standing in between us and a right relationship with the king. Our sin. Adam and Eve were banished from the kingdom, essentially in Genesis chapter 3, and no one, for thousands of years, no one had found a way to bridge the gap between the perfectness the wonderful righteousness of the king and the sinfulness of mankind. It was impossible. You cannot have. How can you be a member of this kingdom? Well, here's what you need. Perfect, spotless righteousness. Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you mint, tithe, and cumin, and all these other wonderful things that you do. Well, let me tell you something. Unless your righteousness is more than that, unless your righteousness is more than the scribes and Pharisees, there's no way you can enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not something that you buy your way into. The kingdom is not something you're born into. Many of you were probably born American citizens. That's how you got here. Your parents had good enough sense to have you born on American soil. And so you are an American citizen. This is not how the kingdom works. You cannot say, well, my mom and dad have always been pretty good Christians, so I guess I'm in the cloud. I don't know. I think God probably approves. Unless your own soul and the sinfulness of it has been dealt with, you cannot enter. That's why the statement says that the thing that we get, the blessing of the new covenant, the first one is the forgiveness of sins. Kingdom language is all over. I want to show you what basically is an entrance to the kingdom conversation. Look at John chapter 3. Any of you who have read your Bible, or memorized a verse in VBS, or seen a clown a clown-haired man at a sporting event holding up a sign. No, John 3, John 3.16, conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And once again, Nicodemus comes to this, to this ruler, this teacher, to Jesus, and says, okay, what is this thing all about and how do I get in? And starting in verse 3, Jesus outlines, this is the requirement for entrance into the kingdom Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why should you have your sins forgiven? Why confess them? Why repent? Why put faith in Jesus? Because without that, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Every blessing, every benefit that I'm ever going to describe about who God is and what his rule is like, you are on the outside looking in. If you do not have a new heart cleansed of sin, That's what Jesus says. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus doubles down. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Until your sins are done away with, you have not been adopted by the king, and you are not in the kingdom. That is the testimony of the Bible over and over and over again. In fact, at different points, it says very, very clearly that until your sins have been dealt with, you are a part of a kingdom. No one gets to opt out, but you are a part of a kingdom that the Bible calls darkness. 
And honestly, at different times, it's a kingdom of self. It's a kingdom of, it's a prison that you live in, tied to your own glory seeking and tied to what people think of you and tied to your own measures of success that you can never quite live up to. But in order to be transferred, that's what Jesus came to do. He transferred us to the kingdom of righteousness, to the kingdom of the Father. You can only enter through the Son. There is no other way. And unless you have the Son, unless he's done away with your sin, every other aspect of Jesus' life is not yours. You gain no benefit. It does you no good to admit that he was a good teacher or a moral example. Mere interest, curiosity in who he was historically does not gain you access to the kingdom only by putting your faith and trust in him. Only if you can say with certainty, my sins have been done away with on the cross, can you enter. That is the testimony of the Bible. The good news is it's that simple. Part of the good news itself is how you enter is amazingly simple. Do you know how to become a citizen of the United States of America? Do you know? I had to look it up. It takes years and years and years and years up to five years, basically, of residence, which to get that even means that you have to prove you have a, a compelling reason to be in the country to do it legally. Then after that, you go through a series of proving your identity, swearing allegiances, getting interviewed, taking an English exam, passing a civics exam on the basic history of our country. And then at a certain point, you swear off all allegiance to anyone else, and boom, you're in. Years and years and years and years and years. The rich young ruler was willing to do almost anything except the one thing that he needed to do to simply surrender and believe. In order to enter, the good news is simply this. You confess your sins. You admit that your kingdom, that your rule and your reign is not enough. You can't do it on your own. And in an instant, not five years, not an interview, not a civics exam, not a spiritual test on the Bible, but simply a desire to be known and loved and accepted by Jesus Christ, you can enter the kingdom. That is the good news of the Bible. And when you're assured of that truth, when you realize you can stop the striving and the pretending and the putting on a pretty face, and confess your sins, and be who you are, and be accepted because Jesus has done away with your sin, it's enough to make you hop, skip, jump, fist bump, lawnmower, whatever. Is that the lawn? That's not it. The sprinkler, right? It's that kind of joy. It's that kind of joy. How you enter the kingdom is a part of the good news. Once you're in, this is also a part of what Jesus taught, what the New Testament teaches. I would say that for the most part, Jesus taught and emphasized how you enter the kingdom of heaven and how it's going to be inaugurated. The rest of the New Testament describes what it's like for those who are in. So we said, how do we enter? Now we're going to say, how do you live? How do you live in the kingdom? Every person that's a citizen of some, king, of some kingdom has some identifying factors. How do you know someone is a particular person, right? They're wearing short, tight, khaki shorts and boat shoes or deck shoes and a polo with some sunglasses and a little thing around their neck, right? They're at an Alabama football game, am I right? I mean, this is, we know who, we know who this is, right? Like there's identifying factors. 
At different times, someone's kindness or their brashness. If you travel internationally, you could ask someone, how do you know if someone is American? You might not want to ask that question. (laughs) There are certain things about someone that ought to mark their inclusion in the kingdom. And this statement says, and it shows the rest of the New Testament, we need to get this right. The gospel is backwards and upside down if if the order is mistaken. We do not live a certain way so that we can enter the kingdom. God accepts us graciously into the kingdom because of his love, and then we live based on our acceptance. If you flip those around, you have religion, man-made religion that goes nowhere. If you get the order right, you have grace and it leads to life. So we ask the first question, how do we enter by grace and grace alone, by what Jesus has done? And the second question, because of what he's done, how do we live? This is how the statement of faith mentions it. Second sentence, basically. Good works constitute indispensable evidence of saving grace. Living as salt in a world that is decaying and light in a world that is dark, believers should neither withdraw into seclusion from the world nor become indistinguishable from it. Rather, we are to do good to the city. For all the glory and honor of the nations is to be offered up to the living God. Recognizing whose created order this is, and because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, doing good to all, especially to those who belong to the household of God. How should we live? That's the question that we're finding. Scripture gives us a number of different ways that we ought to live as a citizen. In fact, the number one motivating factor given by the Bible for why we ought to obey and be loving and be like Christ is because God is your father. You are a part of the kingdom, and because of that, we ought to act like it. That's the order of the Bible over and over and over and over again. I'm just going to give you one example. Romans chapter 14 There's going to be a section in here, verses 17 and 19, where it talks about being acceptable to God. I want to warn you, it's what I just said, there have been 13 plus chapters of theology to this point. Romans is a glorious, soaring text on the sufficiency of Jesus and him alone. That is what these commands rest on, and that has to be there, or else you get a manipulative, burden-causing kind of religion But nevertheless, because we're in Christ, that's why chapter 12 in Romans starts and says, therefore then, by the mercies of God, but I want you to know the way that he argues. This is Romans 14, 17, and 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You are in Christ, and therefore you live in a particular way. Some of the way that Jesus described this is right in the language of the, of the statement. You live as salt in a world that is decaying. Salt is a flavor preserver. It's also a, a way to preserve and to keep food that would otherwise spoil. Salt is also, I think at least in some way, it's a, it's a useful cooking product. I say that as though I'm, can you tell I'm a very experienced chef. Uh, would you hand me that useful cooking product? <laughs> I think those are called ingredients. Salt, Jesus said, is what you are. You are light 
in the world. Have you ever wondered why? Why not when you just enter the kingdom, you confess your sins, they're forgiven. God says, yes, I accept you on the basis of what Jesus has done. Why not just take us out of here? Right? I mean, do you want to go to work tomorrow? For real? You know what I mean? You got to stop algebra. Come on, brah. Algebra, right? No. You don't want this. So why, why, why are we here? Well, because God's plan, his subversive plan in this world is to leave agents, members, sons, heirs, daughters of the kingdom in this world as a grace to the world. I don't know if you know this, but you are intended to be a grace to Tallahassee. We ought to live in such a way that people sense who we are. And they say, even if they say, I think they're crazy, and I don't believe any of the things that they believe, but what would we do without them? Where would all these people that they care for go for care without them? What would we do with parks and culture and arts and the work ethic, the productivity, the fruitfulness of these people? Salt and light is what Jesus says we are in this world. And it's difficult. Living in the kingdom is difficult. I'll give you that. It's hard to balance. The statement itself says, don't withdraw into seclusion from the world. Some of us have fallen into that trap and you know it maybe well. Here's how I know that I can live in the kingdom of God. I'm going to reject everything this earth has to offer. Have you been there? Been in churches like that? Had parents like that? Do you have tendencies like that right now? This is the kind of thing that leads people to say to Jesus, I cannot believe that you had some sinners over to your house for a meal. Because righteousness looks like secluding yourself from the world. We reject that stance. It leads to a kind of moralism and legalism that no one can sustain for one and is not life-giving for two. But the other side is very, very difficult as well. And if I had to say there's one temptation that we probably fall into more often than not because we get grace, we understand mercy, we know it's not our own righteousness, is to become indistinguishable from the world. So never once do we say, no, it doesn't seem like the world's values line up with ours. The next time you say no to any consumption of media, why do you say no? At a certain point, if you're completely indistinguishable from the world, you've lost your tastiness as salt and you're not bringing any light to a dark place. This is the balance that we're called to live in. But overall, we ought to be praying and scheming and thinking and saying, God, how can we love this city well? How can we do good for the people around us? How can we be salt and how can we be light? How can we love neighbor as ourselves? That's what it is to live in the kingdom. It's going to change the way you live or it ought to. I think that most of them are tied up in this next one. When we're called into the kingdom, we're called into a kingdom of hope. We're called into a kingdom of hope. This is how 1 Corinthians 15 says it. Where is all of this going? 1 Corinthians 15 says this, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority, every authority, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. I'm going to skip to Revelation chapter 11. This is a little bit of a spoiler. Some of you don't like to look ahead in the book. We're going to the end. Just, uh, just wait for it. Jesus wins, okay? I don't know if you knew that. 
He wins. It's why we, one of the reasons that we are called to and so joyfully ask people to follow him. Why is there so much joy in heaven? Really, what's it all about? What's the fuss all about? There's these little pictures that we get. The kingdom is what people are happy about. That's what they're happy about. The king has come into his rightful place. This is Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. I want to say to you that one of the most common aspects and characteristics of people who are in the kingdom of God is that we do not despair of our lives. How else is it possible to live in this place and not despair? This means that one day every single bit of sadness, every bit of injustice will be done away with. Every horrible, despicable, ongoing bit of racism, gone. Perfect relationship between people of differing color and ethnicity and culture. More than that, a kind of kingdom that brings about such peace and resolution that forgiveness is not a thing that we strain for. The kingdom will be a place when every bit of estrangement between spouses will be gone. Every bit of difficulty with parents and children who are rebellious or parents who are manipulative and controlling over their kids. Every bit of envy and strife and competitiveness between co-workers, gone. Every single bit of unrighteousness made right. Every unborn child murdered, avenged. Every single malady, every single sadness, the list of violence that we could name right now, that one day God is doing away with all these things. He has not said the final word yet. But the definitive statement, what does God think about suffering in our world? This is what he thinks. He will overcome the space-time flesh-body continuum, put himself into the Virgin Mary, come to earth, live a perfect life. That he will give up the, the relationship with his son and absorb the wrath of all of this suffering and destruction. That he'll overcome the grave itself. That he'll send the comforter to be with us until the end and one day he'll make everything right. We're not there yet. But God's statement is, a statement of hope, the kingdom is coming. And whether or not you can hope that way or not, I know that this is a stretch for many of us. We say that we're a part of the kingdom, we live as though hope is gone. And a lot of that is because we have forgotten that God has promised he will make all things right. This ought to make us ask questions. If God is my king, if Jesus is the ruler of my life, and if he has secured everything I need for all eternity, then why do I fret so much about my stuff? If all of my glory and all of my need has been wrapped up in the person of Jesus, and he is perfectly right and I have his righteousness, why do I care so much about what people think? If I know that one day I'll have a perfect resurrected body and all diseases and death itself will be put, a, put away, 
Why does suffering and disease terrify me so deeply? You see, we have been raised in and we have lived for so long with an ethic and a perspective and a worldview not of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of self and the kingdom of darkness that it is difficult to remember that we have been transferred. But the call for us is to live in hope. And to offer the world so that our statement, when we see things that are horrific and horrible, that we can, with sincerity of heart and clear conscience, say to someone, I am so sorry to hear about the death in your family. I want you to know that God has made a way so that death is not the end. Would you like to hear about Jesus who went to the grave and overcame it? Every bit of dysfunction in this world. One day, God is going to put it right. That is the hope of the kingdom. That's what you've been called to, to live with that in your view. And I know that it's difficult. It's not easy. It's not a simple thing to look at this world and say, I know that one day all will be right. But this is one of the gifts of the Spirit that you would hear again and again and again and again the good news. And that more and more and more you will come to believe that God is for you. He loves you. He is making things right. The reason the kingdom of God is a big deal is because people are not right with the king. And they will be cast out eventually for all eternity unless their sins are done away with. The reason that the kingdom of God is such a big deal is because for those of you who are in, the way you live matters. You have benefits. There are rights and privileges of being a son and daughter that you should not forfeit. And at the end of the day, the kingdom of God matters because it's all we have to offer to the world is a hope that this place is not the end. A better car, a promotion, your name in lights, a vacation spot, These are horrible, horrible things to live for. And we can offer better. We call people to Jesus because he wins. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the kingdom. Thank you that because Jesus came, we have a way to be right with you. We are delighted by that fact. I pray that you'd help us to live as children of the king. 